Good morning again. This is, today is Deliverance Sunday. Matt asked me to deliver the sermon about the deliverance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, just in case Shay went a little early and delivered the baby. <laughs> so after this morning, it'll be two down and one to go. As Matt said, I'm an elder candidate here at Liberty. Uh, at least I will be till about noon today, I think. We're going to look at, um, that was a joke, that was a joke. Take a little while, I'll give you time. If you have, can find a black hard-covered Bible under your seat, you can turn to page 739. We are going to look at a very, very well-known passage of Scripture, the deliverance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. Daniel chapter 3, we're going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 to 30. Preaching is difficult work, and this week I was made uh, even more grateful for Matt and the hard work that he does in teaching and preaching. It uh, comes with unusual costs sometimes, unexpected costs as I was meditating on, reflecting a lot about uh, these three young men and the suffering that they endured uh, in the Middle East. Uh, in very, very difficult circumstances. I had a dream one night that my house was surrounded by Middle East terrorists, and uh, I was trying to escape through the snow and keep my family safe. Then last night, because Dana and I have have reflected on this together and talked about it quite a bit, she had a dream that she was uh, in Nazi Germany and hiding Jews and living in an attic. So you never know the strange and unusual things that will happen um, when you prepare to bring God's word. Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 1 to 30. Let's read it together. King Nebuchadnezzar, this is page 739 in those black hard-covered Bibles. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. 
You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you're ready... When you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who's the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, no, Nebuchadnezzar. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if, it not, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Didn't we cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god 
except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Our Father, I pray that I would only do this justice. What a story. May it burn within each of us this same resolve not to defile ourselves that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel shared. Cause us to lay down our love of life and willing, be willing to sacrifice ourselves out of our covenant faithfulness to you who loved us first. Give us faith to trust you in the midst of where we find ourselves because of the example of these men, that you are indeed sovereign and that you are both good and powerful. And that in the wide sweep of history, as well as in the nitty-gritty of our lives, you are faithful and you are in control. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. This is a story of a pagan king drunk with pride and three young men who dared to defy his order. It's hard for us to get inside the world of the ancient Near East. Mentally, we can grasp it, but to feel it is difficult. It's very foreign to us. If you were born and have lived in the United States of America for the last hundred years, you have experienced unparalleled peace, stability, political stability, prosperity, that the rest of the world over the centuries, over the millennia, would have little to share with us. There would be little in common. Even the terrible things we can point to, like the Great Depression or the Dust Bowl years, are trifles relative to the epic, supersized catastrophes that people in other ages have suffered. If you've not lived through drought, pestilence, plague, invasion, foreign invasion, famine, siege, warfare on your own soil, and oppression by capricious, despotic tyrants, then, then most of the women that we share this planet with cannot relate to us. We, unlike most of the world, actually have rights granted to us by laws. We have the right to disagree with our government, to publish our dissent without fear of repercussion, though that may be getting riskier, and to demonstrate it against it. We've had representative government, free and peaceful elections. We watch the news and we know that it's not so in other parts of the world, like the Middle East or Africa, but we just hope and pray that it never comes to us. This is the story of four men captured in war, taken into exile, and placed into the service of a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar. 
So I'd like for us to do a little bit of time travel this morning and go back about 2,600 years and try to descend together into the world of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is a story of their faithfulness unto death and their obedience to God, no matter what the cost. About 400 years after King David uh, sat on the throne in Jerusalem, we come to a very sad point in the history of the Old Testament. It's long after David and Solomon's reign, long after that united kingdom fell apart into two divided kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And we're at a tragic point in the history of God's people where Jerusalem comes under the control of, of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. This is described for us in 2 Kings 24 and Jeremiah chapter 25. The prophet Jeremiah predicted all this would happen because of the persistent and unrepentant wickedness of God's people. And what did that persistent sin look like? Two things constituted it and characterized it. One was idolatry and the other was sexual immorality. And the sexual immorality was tied very closely to the idolatrous religion and worship. And this was God's people. And God was bringing judgment, worshiping any God but the Lord and making making sex a God brings desolation. It is no different for us as individuals today, and the tragic and sad aftermath is the same. But as we'll see, out of this desolation, God can rebuild. Today, the idols just take a different shape. False religion has a little bit different liturgy, and sex is still one of the chief rituals. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah said. I have spoken persistently persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophet, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and his evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord God has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve them. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you've not obeyed my words, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. And I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of of Babylon 70 years. So this is a sad, sad history indeed. Nearly every Jewish king's epitaph reads... And so and so did evil in, the, evil in the sight of the Lord, just as his father had done. The first time Nebuchadnezzar comes up against Jerusalem, he made, it, he made its king, Jehoiakim, his vassal. Then he went back to Babylon. But then about three years later, Jehoiakim did something very foolish, and he went against the counsel of the prophet Jeremiah, and he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar returned with his army, invaded Judah, laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. And this time, Jehoiakim died during the siege. And his son, 18-year-old Jehoiachin, became king in his place for three months. It's what every crown prince just looks forward to, becoming king when your city's under siege. 
what every 18-year-old man's dream is, becoming a king while your city is under attack by a vastly superior force. That's a far cry from high school. But eventually Jehoiachin surrenders. He was wise for his age. And Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. And he was deported along with about 10,000 people, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, along with him, back to Babylon, a long walk of about 900 miles, just slightly less than half the Appalachian Trail. Now, sieges are terrible things. You see a lot of brutality and disgusting things and surely leave a person suffering from post-traumatic stress. Daniel and his friends saw and lived through all this stuff as very young men, youth, in fact, probably about 15. And for a certainty, their faith and their convictions were shaped by it. So to round out the story, Nebuchadnezzar installed Jehoiachin's uncle, 21-year-old Zedekiah, or Hanan, uh, Mataniah, who he renamed Zedekiah. The Babylonians liked to rename people to strip them of their identity. It was one tactic that they had in their systematic plan of subjugation, complete subjugation. And Zedekiah, as if surviving one siege wasn't enough, 11 years later, he decides to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar comes back again, and this time lays siege and completely destroys and levels the city, tears down its walls, burns down every worthwhile building, burns down the temple, burns down the palace, takes Zedekiah, gouges out his eyes, puts him in chains, and hauls him back to Babylon, where he later roasts him over a fire. Now, all that was just to give you something to be grateful for this morning. Aren't you so thankful that you did not grow up in Jerusalem in the late 7th century B.C.? All you teenagers who are just now beginning your summers, doing a little traveling, working at McDonald's, hanging out with friends, aren't you glad you're not defending your city against the siege by a Babylonian king and having to walk 900 miles to Babylon? What was this place called Babylon that was 900 miles away? We read about it early in the Bible, Genesis chapter 11. It's in the land of Shinar. It's it's where the Tower of Babel was built. It is the early center for false religion. Babylon was built, a city built right on the Euphrates River in modern-day Iraq, in that fertile crescent, the fertile plain between the Tigris and the Euphrates. Saddam Hussein could see the city of Babylon from his summer palace. It is a hotbed of of demonic and occult activity at the highest places of government. We We have no idea. This isn't Miss Lulu's fortune telling kiosk in one of our communities. This is a place where the deepest satanic things occur. And while nothing is different in our world today, sometimes in 21st century America, We can lose sight. We can be lulled into believing that that our world is less antichrist than it was in the days of Babylon. So Babylon, it was a bad place, and it becomes symbolic throughout the scriptures as the center of false worship and counterfeit religion with man at the center in opposition to God. Babylon is representational for not only false religion and man-centered worship, but especially for sexual immorality in Scripture. Secular culture even acknowledges this. 
Not far from here, there's a, a business of ill repute called Babylon. The status policy of Babylon was to swallow up absolutely everything in its path. That's the way it's described by the prophets. It devours everything in front of it. Babylon devours whole. It's described metaphorically in Revelation as the harlot, as, a, as, a, as symbolic of, of complete sexual immorality. In Proverbs 30, we have this image. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. It's this gross image Babylon is. John the Apostle exhorts us, love not the world. As we will see, Daniel and his friends, they refuse to be eaten. Babylon hasn't been defeated yet. And it still wants to eat us up. Babylon proclaims, we will suffocate you. Our ideology will seep into every pore of your soul. We will, we will wrap our tentacles around you and put a spell over your mind and control every thought. You will lose your distinct identity. Everything must come under our control. Today, Babylon is man-centered religion with its preoccupation with sex. It is pervasive. It is invasive. Sometimes it seems inescapable and all-present. It's important to grasp here that in Babylon, literally for Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and for us metaphorically, to have full economic and social participation in the society, you had to participate in its pagan religious festivals, its dedications, its celebrations. The remarkable thing here is that Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego did not participate at the risk of their lives, yet God prospered them. In Babylon, you proved your political allegiance by worshiping the king, which is equal to walking in lockstep with the party line. There's no dissent allowed. Daniel and his friends did not. And yet because they demonstrated unflinching devotion to God and faith in his sovereign acts, they thrived in a pagan culture. Who was this Nebuchadnezzar? What were the Babylonians like? Well, Nebuchadnezzar named his son Evil Merodach. I can just see like Gandalf saying that. Evil Merodach. It didn't mean evil, it's a transliteration, but it sounds ominous. This man had absolute power. Speaking to King Belshazzar, Daniel said in chapter 5, he said, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. The Babylonians were ruthless. Nebuchadnezzar was tyrannical. The army was brutal, merciless, and bloodthirsty. The testimony of the prophets was a continued warning of impending judgment on his people by a wicked people, a much greater wicked people. The Babylonians would leave a scorched earth policy. Nebuchadnezzar 
we read he employed all of these different methods for, for executing his enemy. We, in chapter, his enemies. In chapter 1, Daniel's the, his, uh, the man he's answerable to, the chief eunuch, fears that he's going to lose his head. He employed beheading. All the wise men in Babylon after this were to be torn uh, limb from limb and their houses made into a heap of rubbish uh, if they couldn't tell Nebuchadnezzar what he dreamed and what, what the interpretation was. Anyone who didn't fall down in front of the worship was to be cast into this burning, fiery furnace. These furnaces were, were like railroad tunnels where they made bricks to build the city. And uh, the, Nebuchadnezzar had a, a vast building project. The hanging, uh, hanging gardens of Babylon were his creation. So it was a vast uh, industry of brick-making, and he created kilns, and in them, if need be, he destroyed his enemies. He kept lions just to, to, just to destroy his enemies. And this, this brutality, it's still with us. I, I recently looked at some images that were just terrible of, of what ISIS is doing in, in Iraq and the Christians that are suffering there seeing men once again roasted over fires and beheaded. So who were these young men? As I said, they were, they were exiles brought in 605 BC. They were youths, young men. And think back to now what they saw and what they experienced. And I think that the formation of their, of their spiritual backbone occurred in the trauma of siege and exile. You see, I think we have to reflect on this history. We have to do the work of reflecting on this history to understand who they were and what they were like and what their faith was made of. They didn't just suddenly become capable of resisting the most wicked power on earth, the most powerful forces of evil overnight. They lived through unbelievable suffering and saw the desolation that came upon the people of God because of sin. And they were part of that people. Before they were tested by the burning fiery furnace, their metal was cast in the flames of the burning city of Jerusalem, yielded to God, their lives were purified in the crucible of suffering. Their temper was hardened into steel in that battle. When this happens to a person, especially young in life, where you see the tragic consequences of sin all around you, as sad and as difficult as that may be, it can have the grace-filled impact of spooking you away from sin. It's, it's, in the Bible, it's called in the Bible being fearful of sinning. 1 Timothy 5, 20 speaks of that. That kind of resolution, it's not self-righteous. It's not holier than thou. It's born out of brokenness over sin. Look at what has happened as they looked around Jerusalem and they saw its desolation and they saw what happens in a life, what happens in a nation when sin is allowed to run rampant. It steeled them. It changed them. Judgment was raining down for faithlessness to the covenant, and they were renewing their vows. 
Seeing and experiencing sin and its consequences firsthand produces a beautiful and fragrant grace. Far from a self-righteous spirit in these men, we see a winsomeness, a graciousness, a holy reverence, an ease about them to live in Babylon among the Babylonians. They were able to see the Babylonians as God's instrument of judgment and approach their situation with a holy reverence, a holy reverence. We're tempted when we're placed in such difficult circumstances to rail against them, to act hatefully toward our enemies, and to stop believing in the goodness or the power of God. We're prone to stop believing or doubt that God is sovereign because to acknowledge that God is sovereign means nothing is out of of his ultimate control. Not even our enemies, our accusers, our oppressors, our tragedies. Trusting God is sovereign often does not feel comforting. In fact, it feels agonizing because God who is able to intervene doesn't. By faith, we believe God is both good and powerful. And in the middle of that sometimes irreconcilable paradox, we practice surrender. We, we, We in practice surrender one of them and sometimes both. It does not make sense to us that a people more wicked than us are God's instruments of chastening and purification in our lives. But that is indeed what God is doing, what he was doing, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are there because the hand of the Lord has done this. Holy reverence will have you considering in silence how God is using circumstances that are terrible and tragic to accomplish his will, not only in the epic scale of history, but in the nitty-gritty of our lives. Holy reverence has us putting our hands over our mouths, accepting what God is doing, though it makes no sense, and trusting amidst blinding tears that his ways, though unsearchable, are perfect. The way they interact with their conquerors is with holy reverence. It is, a, it is to serve them as God gives them favor, to be a light to the Gentile Babylonians, not only to expose sin, but to guide them toward the truth of his salvation. They do not advance themselves by scheming and intrigue or by cutting their opposition down as they advance, but they advance by grace in Babylon. Like Jesus, they love their enemy. They act to save not only themselves, but even their occult practitioners who were sentenced to death along with them. What else can we observe about these men before their ultimate test of faith? In chapter 1, we read, Matt preached a couple weeks ago, that Daniel and his friends made up their mind that they would not defile themselves by eating the king's food or wine. Amidst tremendous pressure to give in, blend in, and stand down, they decide to stand out. Instead of standing by, they stand up. We don't know why exactly they did this. And like Matt said a couple weeks ago, we don't want to do anything silly with that and create another diet as some have done. But perhaps perhaps it would have meant that they would have violated some Levitical dietary law. Perhaps the king's menu had all been offered to idols. Perhaps it was some of both. But whatever the reason... They realized that they had to draw a line in the sand 
before they were sucked in by the gravitational pull of Babylon. Here is where they took their stand and they would not be bullied into compliance. I can see them being accused of being legalists, overscrupulous, small-minded, and short-sighted. After all, what kind of hill is this to die on? We're not talking about one of the Ten Commandments. We're not talking about saying no to sexual immorality or idol worship or outright paganism. They were risking their skin over defilement by food and wine. The point is this. They chose not to defile themselves. Not now, not later, not here, not there, not in something small, not in something big. They might be in Babylon, but Babylon would not be in them. They would remain in the world, but not be of the world. This was courage, raw courage. It was covenant faithfulness and love for God. And they did this with holy reverence and grace, and without self-righteous contempt toward their masters. Being a people holy to the Lord meant that they would not be able to blend in and be invisible. They would be distinct from the people around them and separated from defilement by sin. Courage. This is holy courage. So now we come to this scene a scene of complete faithfulness before the fire for these four men and a scene of complete submission before the image of everyone else. These men, whose faithfulness had been forged and tested and who now hold some of the highest offices in government, have have to attend this dedication, this dedication of a 90-foot tall by 9-foot wide idol monstrosity created by Nebuchadnezzar. It sounds like it might have been an an image like he saw in his dream in chapter 2. This event, it's almost comical because it displays the pomposity of Nebuchadnezzar and the slavish obedience of every bigwig and big wheel in Babylon. The entire civil service and diplomatic corps is there, present to give their their proof of their complete subjugation to the will of Nebuchadnezzar. And this is where hubris outrageous arrogance reaches ridiculous proportions. Nebuchadnezzar had disarmed them of everything, especially of their choice. They had to bow down. They had no choice. When we give the signal, everybody bow down. Everyone must be subservient as dogs. Not a single, solitary, independent person was to exist. In the world of their Babylonia, dissent was utterly unacceptable. Any dissent in Babylon was fatal to one's career, promotion, advancement, reputation, social standing, any advancement in life. When the band plays, get down on your face and worship or you will be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. That's how little value you have as an individual in Babylon. You only exist if it's the will of Nebuchadnezzar. Try for a moment to, we must try for a moment to put ourselves in their shoes. When the music plays, drop to your knees. It was a big crowd assembled there. And he was demonstrating, Nebuchadnezzar was, his complete control over every mind and heart, except for the three young men. 
We don't know why Daniel doesn't figure in the story. We're not told. But Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah never give it a second thought. Never. Never was their answer. They simply refused to bow. They had no antenna. They didn't look around to see what everyone else was doing. They had a clear moral compass. And it wasn't the word of Nebuchadnezzar. It was the word of the Lord. They were being asked to violate their loyalty to God alone in the most basic confession of their monotheistic faith found in in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, Shema Israel, which means, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And they recited that twice a day. For the Christian, the equivalent would be Jesus is Lord. Now, they could have rationalized this along these lines. If we refuse and die, who will look out for our people, our families? We needed, we're needed to represent their interests and ensure the welfare of our people in this pagan nation. Or God has put us here in this place, in this place of favor and authority. He wouldn't have blessed us only to have us turn and throw it away. And he knows my heart. Or this one that's really powerful. We can do this in our official capacity but maintain our private faith. Now, God had commanded them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down. Their obedience, their faithfulness is a miracle in and of itself. Most of the time, men cave under pressure. They recant when the fire is lit. Men will trade their soul to the devil to save their skin. not the three young men. These men, given a second chance to save themselves, resisted the gravitational pull of Babylon upon their eyes and flesh, and when faced with supreme temptation to yield to the boastful pride of life, which says, my life is too important to me to sacrifice for God. When the band struck up, they instead yielded to the fire, and said to the king, burn us up, burn us up. They yielded up their bodies, it says, rather than serve or worship any god except the Lord. The most important character in this story is Christ in the furnace. I believe this is Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate angel of the Lord, with them in the midst. Christ is with us in our trials. Imagine what it was like to experience Jesus in that furnace with them, what he would have said to them. I like to think of Stephen, who in Acts chapter 7, as as he's preaching the gospel and then paying for it by being stoned, he sees Christ, who who we are told is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He looks And behold, the heavens open, and Stephen sees Jesus standing. He sees Jesus standing. Christ is with us in the hottest fire, in the deepest suffering. He says, Stephen, you faithful servant, in a moment you will be with me. I know you love me. I know you do. Where is Christ when you're in the valley of the shadow of death? He's right there with you. 
to empower you. Empower you to persevere to the end. You may not feel him there because of the darkness, but you know he's there by the certainty of faith because faith is the conviction of things unseen and unfelt. He's with you when you're most alone. He's with his people when they're pressed and put to the test. He's with the three young men. He's in their midst. So what else can we add to this? Where are we? Where do we figure into this story? First, we have a choice, and dissent is critical. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego made a decision. They made up their minds not to defile themselves. Spiritual bondage is believing you have to sin in Babylon, that you have no choice. That arch-bully Satan would want to pressure you into compliance, to manipulate you out of fear, and whisper in your ear, you have no choice, you've lost your power. You have to sin. Who are you kidding? If that was true, we would have no gospel. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the power of God. By it, God empowers us by his spirit that we do not have to cave to pressure. We do not have to surrender to lust. God puts the choice before us. We are not programmed to sin when the music plays. We can trust God's sovereignty. Perhaps this morning it needs to be renewed. The book of Daniel teaches us that God is sovereign in sieges. He's sovereign in furnaces, in lion's dens, among pagan people. We can't explain it. We can't understand it most of the time. But we can trust that God is sovereign even over the bad things that happen in our lives. There will be a consummation one day and God will wipe away every tear. So in conclusion, what do we take from the lives of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Faithfulness and obedience to God are costly. They mean that we will make up our mind not to defile ourselves with the spirit of Babylon. It's false religion of the worship of man and it's chief religious ritual of sexual immorality. They teach us backbone. They teach us faithfulness. They teach us integrity and perseverance. Wholesale, wholehearted loyalty. Holy courage. Second, like them, we can trust that God is sovereign, both all good and all powerful over the sweep of history and our own lives, even when the events around us seem to eclipse him from view. They demonstrate spiritual formation in the crucible of suffering. They teach us faith. They teach us acceptance of God's will, even when it's agonizing. They teach us worship. They teach us holy reverence. Third, they show us real men and women can live faithfully for God in a pagan culture of rampant wickedness. They teach us holiness. Fourth, they show us dedication to the success and welfare of the unbelieving people among whom you are called to live. They teach us mission. They teach us grace. 
Fifth, they prove a commitment to speak truth to power without fear because their God is greater and he casts out fear. They teach us boldness. And lastly, they show us not men hiding the light of the gospel under a basket, but putting it on display for all to see for the glory of God. They teach us mission. Let us then rise up and follow in their steps. Let's pray. Our Father, only you and us are adequate for these things. Forgive us with your plentiful forgiveness for when we have not been a Daniel, when we have not been a Hananiah or Mishael or Azariah, and give us perseverance, faithfulness to the end, faithful in our mission, faithful with the gospel, bold, courageous, ready to suffer, full of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.